to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. This episode explores the Brazilian music genre, bossa nova, as a type of music that articulates an emergent notion of the middle class. I discuss the problem of defining what the middle class is, I address what I call its bad conscience, and explore how that conscience impacts music, in this case bossa nova, that seems to represent the class. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. hear about the problems of the middle class, that it is ever less secure, threatened by taxation or economic precarity or corrupt loaning practices, that it is plagued by increasing debt and dropping wealth, that it is being squeezed out of existence. But there's yet another problem of the middle class that's even more essential, and that is purely definitional. What on earth is it? You probably think you know, and that thinking you know is telling. You probably, if you have the time and relative interest to listen to a podcast like this one, you probably think you are part of the middle class, whether you particularly enjoy that identification or not, and that thinking you are part of it is also telling. Let's take each in turn. First, the idea that you think you know what the middle class is. Part of the power of the concept is that it goes unchallenged in general parlance. Politicians and reporters and pundits all refer to the middle class as though it was an unproblematic category available to common sense understanding. In the last election cycle, the candidates constantly referred to the middle class. Trump claimed he was putting the middle class back on course. Warren decried the various factors she saw as threatening it. Biden wanted us to be mindful that it was the middle class that built this country. Each of these claims posits the middle class as a self-evident and thoroughly obvious category. But is it? It seems like it should be relatively simple to define, right? I mean, the middle class is the one in between the rich capitalists, let's call them the 1%, and the truly impoverished, the poor, the homeless. But that would take in a vast array of people, of various financial earnings and wealth, and of course, these are not the same thing. That would mean that an employee of a chain store earning roughly, let's say, 35000 a year, and with a huge amount of student debt, and the manager of that same store, earning roughly 80000 a year with a moderate to huge amount of credit card and mortgage debt, and a professional, let's say a doctor, uh, with earning roughly $200,000 a year and probably still with a decent amount of debt, that they're all in the same unwieldy category. But that assumes something that we often assume, I think mistakenly, about such class assignments. We assume they have to do with clear-cut quantitative measures of income and wealth, but that's not the case. Being in the middle class doesn't mean you earn between X and Y amount of money. Or it does for certain statisticians, uh, but there's no consensus on what that X and Y should be. Class assignment is more than economics, even if it is grounded in economics. Class has to do with a set of assumptions about value, character, goals, measures of belonging and worth, and a manner of understanding the world. We'll come back to that. The point for now is that it is impossible to securely define the middle class, and that's part of the power of the middle class as a concept. 
The second issue was that most of us probably think of ourselves as middle class. Polls reveal that over 70% of the U.S. population considers itself middle class. The statistics are a little different for England and for other countries, but it's usually a lot more people consider themselves in the middle class than would be by simple economic factors. That's a large middle, right, 70%, and particularly given the homeless and proper poverty issues still prevalent in the U.S. Now, this in a way follows from what we've already established. Being in the middle class has less to do with a quantitative amount of money available to a person and more to do with a qualitative understanding of one's position in society. Let's think back once more to the 2020 election cycle. How many times did you hear anyone, aside from Bernie Sanders, mention poverty and homelessness or use the term working class? I'm betting not often, again, aside from Sanders. And there is a kind of obvious reason for that. Politicians want you to feel like you are, on the one hand, a relatively secure member of society, unless you have a vested interest in participating in politics. But on the other hand, they want you to believe that they can help you. And so you need help. And so they will address those issues that you're facing. Now, this follows relatively naturally from the fact that human beings are profoundly social animals. Even hermits and misanthropes see themselves in relations to others, even if it's a relation of distance. But being with others is a huge part of being human. This leads to an implicit demand for some level of conformity, or in a more benign turn of phrase, some level of an internalization of social demand. Eric Fromm, in an article entitled Individual and Social Origins of Neurosis, writes this, quote, In order that any society may function well, its members must acquire the kind of character that makes them want to act in the way that they have to act as members of the society or of a special class within it. They have to desire what objectively is necessary for them to do. Outer force is replaced by inner compulsion and by that particular kind of human energy which is channeled into character traits. So part of our value system, part of what makes us uh, the, char the characters that we have, is shaped by the value system into which we are thrown at birth. We internalize societal needs and think of them as personal needs. So we don't need to be forced to do things that are good for society. We do them as part of our value system, as the way we see the world. For instance, the middle class virtue of working hard. Some studies show that people now spend more time working on the whole than in previous centuries, including centuries informed by feudalism. Now, why is that a virtue? Well, because it helps society, specifically a capitalist society, that is defined by incessant growth. The assumption in U.S. economic thinking is roughly that we should grow roughly 8% per year. Anything less is considered a slump by many economists. Now, that should seem a bit insane, given the fact that we live in a world of limited resources, limited space, limited number of consumers, and so on. But a big part of who we are in a capitalist society is based on potential earnings. That is how you are rated for loans, and that is how businesses are judged. Not on what has been attained, but on what might be attained. That's why stocks go up when a popular new CEO is put in place, before any actual earnings come in. In a sense, the middle class is a living gamble. So calling attention to both the nobility of, on the one hand, and the threats to, on the other, the so-called but never quite defined because impossible to define middle class, allows politicians to speak to something in you that is real, we are social animals, and our desires in part derive from the needs of society. Now, 
Politics and bureaucracy, they're not designed, probably can't be designed, to address your issues as an individual directly. So insofar as you are helped or hurt by the political machine, or better yet, insofar as you are even seen by it, you are seen as part of a demographic, part of a category. So the rhetoric surrounding the middle class is so successful because it seems to encompass, well, just about everyone, or at least everyone who's going to vote. The really rich will often boast that they were self-made men and women that came from the middle class and still embody middle class values. Most people that might accurately be thought of as part of a working class, which is really most of us, I mean, you work, don't you? These people prefer, we prefer to see ourselves as middle class. Those who are truly impoverished and or homeless are often forgotten altogether or worse yet blamed for their own poverty. If only they had the proper values, the middle class says to itself, maybe they would have what we have. And notice how generalized this all becomes, what we have, as though all of us who might think of ourselves as middle class really have access to the same things. Now, we know we don't, of course. And that makes the middle class identification extraordinarily other-directed. The keeping up with the Joneses is an essential aspect of our socialization. We can rail against it all we like, but it isn't easy to, to divest ourselves of it altogether. We judge where we are in society by looking at others. In his book, The Lonely Crowd, David Riesman points out that the other-directed social character type has long been thought to be synonymous with the American character that people like Tocqueville and other people early in, during the early days of, of the U.S., uh, these observers, they described as the American character, right? Relatively free with money, friendly, uncertain of him or herself, uncertain of their value systems, more seeking of approval rather than respect. He writes, what is common to all other directed people is that their contemporaries are the source of direction for the individual, either those known to him or those with whom he is indirectly acquainted through friends and through the mass media. This source is, of course, internalized in the sense that dependence on it for guidance in life is implanted early. The goals toward which the other directed person strives shift with that guidance. It is only the process of striving itself and the process of paying close attention to the signals from others that remain unaltered throughout life. End quote. That's on page 22 of, of his book. And you can find the first chapter, uh, a PDF of it for free online if you want to take a look at that. Now, of course, the middle class is very concerned with opinion, but not just anyone's opinion. So whose opinion begins to matter very much? This can be certain public figures, celebrities, or in our current social media landscape, influencers and, and verified users, people with many followers or with the right kind of followers. And what constitutes the right kind and the right numbers is in constant flux. So knowing that, being in the know, is part of the extraordinary sensitivity that the other directed middle class is asked to or forced to cultivate. Okay, so the middle class is not simply a economic category. It is a social one, that encompasses elements of earnings and wealth alongside values, explicit and implicit, assumptions regarding normativity, largely white and heterosexual, heteronormative, modes of behavior, and attitudes toward the world. 
The middle class, by and large, emphasizes human capital over legal or economic capital. That is to say that members of the middle class develop skills and acquire education to make contributions to capitalist production rather than providing the capital for that production in the manner of the capitalists themselves. Certain value systems are indicative of the middle class. Home ownership, delayed gratification to an extent, but at the same time, conspicuous consumption, job security, education, etiquette, uh, elective associations, right? Uh, groups that you, you belong to, societies and so on. One of the things that I think is interesting about the middle class is that for a while there in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, unions were encouraged not to use the word union when recruiting people to be part of it because it was so unpopular, right? So they weren't supposed to use the, the words working class and they weren't supposed to use the words the word union because people were more uh, accustomed to and comfortable with thinking of themselves as middle, middle class and they wanted to belong to associations, not unions. So, uh, so, so this idea of, of, of associations and, and so on. And then also, of course, another uh, idea that's indicative of the middle class is a controlled and sometimes reserved self-presentation. So members of the middle class tend to perpetuate capitalism through consumerism rather than through economic influence. Their primary form of wealth is in the home as property, but this isn't nearly as secure as it seems. The idea of my home being my castle is purely figurative. Now, being a good consumer and seeing yourself in relation to others via conspicuous consumption is essential for the operation of a rampant capitalism. And remember that capitalism is at least thought to require rampancy. Conspicuous consumption, consum consumption meant to be seen, is paramount here. What is important is seeming to have things rather than actually having them, appearing to be a certain way rather than necessarily being it. The potential for earning rather than what has actually been earned and worse or better yet, saved. Now, we might see our conception of the middle class as evolving out of the Marxist notion of the petite bourgeoisie, which consisted of small to mid-sized business owners. In one sense, they appear to be capitalists, right? I mean, they employ others to do work and they take the surplus value of that work as profit. But they remain beholden to the banks and larger corporations. And those are the real capitalists, or I suppose we could call them the gross bourgeoisie, right? The big bourgeoisie. Uh, professionals like doctors, lawyers, artists, architects, they're beholden to the rich for commissions, for wings of hospitals, as clients, and so on. Meanwhile, while the middle class venerates economic security, its ever-accumulating debt places it in a precarious situation. We're all just one paycheck away, it would seem, from disaster. This is the real squeezing of the middle class. If Marx is right, and class structure derives from class struggle, in which the working class is inevitably pitted in an agonistic struggle with the capitalists, then the middle class and the desire to understand oneself as middle class is positioned as the perfect patsy. By espousing the virtue of hard work and self-reliance, the middle class reproduces capitalist culture and class relations while deflating the acute nature of class conflict. So it serves as a kind of buffer. The middle class works mostly for wages. They are exploited in the manner of the working class, but they don't want to see themselves as the working class. They've internalized the notion that hard work leads inexorably to success with the implicit correlate that failure indicates inadequate work and devotion. So they operate as working class without identifying directly with the grievances of the working class. They identify with the rich without actually being rich. 
This gives the middle class what I would term a bad conscience. Again, not one that is often recognized as such, at least not always. The middle class venerates the notion of free time and money set aside for the purchase of consumer items that are not among the necessities of life and yet become social necessities. So we need a certain car because of what it says about us, even if a jalopy would get us around just fine. The middle class is also the main consumer of products of the music industry, and that's part of the conspicuous consumption, being in the moment, being up to date, knowing what's out there, and being conversant in that, being part of popular culture. Now, I think an interesting element of middle class bad conscience emerges right here. Think of a popular music genre that is widely considered authentic. It isn't a matter of whether or not we want to quibble with the notion of authenticity. We can do that later, but certain genres... Traditional country, rock and roll, punk, uh, reggae, funk, hip-hop, they're coded by critics and wider society as being relatively authentic. While other genres, pop music, especially for dancing, pop-oriented country, disco, progressive rock, those are coded as being relatively inauthentic. Part of that might have to do with class assignment. Not real, but perceived. In other words, it doesn't matter that plenty of rock and hip-hop and country artists derive from the middle class or that plenty of disco and uh, pop artists might derive from the uh, lower class or the working class. What matters is that the genres that are coded as authentic are also coded working class. So notice in country music, some of the popular country songs, all the references to poverty, right? Think of uh, Loretta Lynn or, or um, uh, uh, Dolly Parton, right? Uh, think of the references to work in, in rock and roll, right? Chuck Berry and so on. Think of references to the ghetto and a great deal of hip-hop, right? Music that clearly articulates middle-class concerns is considered suspect, Think of the emphasis on musical learning, classical influence, fantastic literature and complex structures in progressive rock. Heck, progressive rock is the birthplace of rock opera, after all. And so it seems dismissible, pretentious, right? It all seems a bit campy, a bit embarrassing. Not surprisingly, those genres get a bit of a bad rap, even when they have moments of great popularity. These genres often have relatively brief lifespans, although they may be revived later. And that's, of course, more and more typical now as these revivals of, of seemingly disgraced former genres. Now, I want to suggest that we see something like this happening with the Brazilian genre of bossa nova, the heyday of which is a mere seven years, 1958 to 1964. Those years aren't coincidental, I think. They're the result of a dramatic shift in class, in class consciousness, in Brazilian society. Let's take a look at that.
much of its history, the more or less official cultural center of Brazil was the South, particularly in the coastal cities like Rio de Janeiro, which was the capital of the country from 1763 to 1960. Indeed, Rio was so important that for a brief time it was the capital of the entire Portuguese empire, starting in 1808 when the court was briefly in exile from Lisbon. And it was quite successful as a court in Rio de Janeiro, so that the prince didn't want to move back to Portugal. That created all sorts of other problems and eventually led to the independence of Brazil. The wealth was concentrated, the wealth of Brazil was concentrated in the south, while the remainder of its vast territory was occupied by huge sugarcane plantations worked by imported African slaves. In the early 19th century, Brazil fought for its independence from Portugal, and it finally ended slavery in 1888, but not until 1888, right? Almost an entire century continued uh, with, with slavery, leaving a large population of Afro-Brazilians in a state of fairly abject poverty. Like a lot of former colonies, Brazil led a divided existence, in a sense divided three ways. There were the descendants of the aboriginal peoples, the people that were there before the colonial invasion. There was the descendants of the colonists, and then the recently freed slaves and their progeny. By the end of slavery, blacks constituted roughly half the population of Brazil. Early in the 20th century, Rio de Janeiro and other major southern coastal cities remained bastions of the Portuguese descendants, and they maintained largely European tastes and social mores. But in the decades following 1888, Afro-Brazilians began to migrate south to the cities. Indeed, already by the 1890s, roughly half the population of Rio was black, and they of course brought their cultural influence with them to the city. At the musical center of that cultural influence was the samba. I hope to discuss the fascinating if murky history of the samba in a future episode. For now, we only need to address a few highlights. The precise origins of the samba are lost to history. It seems to have evolved in Bahia, the center of the Luso-Brazilian slave trade, and then spread with Afro-Brazilians from Maranhão in the north to Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro in the south. The earliest sambas were of a distinctly African nature, with an emphasis on percussion, polyrhythms, syncopation, call and response structures, pentatonic scales, and accompanied by dancing. By the early 20th century, samba production centered in Rio de Janeiro, uh, particularly in the Estacio neighborhood. The samba witnessed a dramatic rise in popularity and importance alongside the increasing prominence of Carnival as an Afro-Brazilian festival. The first samba recording, although some authors claim it's not really a samba, but it's more closely associated with the Maxiche, uh, was the 1917 recording by Donga, or Ernesto de dos Santos, called Pelo Telefone. But the Estacio samba musicians proved controversial in Rio at first. The authorities would break up performances. The middle-class citizens, the white Portuguese descendants, dismissed the music as unrefined, the music of undesirables the music of others. Even though the ex-slaves constituted roughly half the population of Brazil and half the population of Rio, they were still regarded as outsiders. This begins to change during the period of the so-called Novo Estado from 1930 uh, to 1945 under the military dictatorship of Getulio Vargas. Although radio broadcasting began in Brazil in 1922, there were a few stations with relatively limited reach, and those stations catered largely to classical music and educational programs. 
Radio had little presence in the everyday lives of Brazilians. But this changes with Vargas, who viewed radio as a means of greater national cohesion and a vehicle for political propaganda. For Vargas, such propaganda need not be overt. That is, he wasn't exclusively interested in simply broadcasting his political views, although his robust use of censorship guaranteed that other political views wouldn't be so widely disseminated. But rather, he thought radio could promote his sense of nationalism by making it feel real. If people listen together, if they hear what are purported to be representations of themselves, of their national character, then they begin to adopt the image produced. They will become the instantiation of the Brazilian they hear represented on radio. Under Vargas, radio became commercially viable through the sale of ad time and became the central disseminator of what was increasingly regarded as a Brazilian popular music, and that was, of course, the samba. The 1930s were the age of samba stars like Carmen Miranda holding the radio airwaves. It was the age of increasing whiteness in samba production, with composers like Ari Barroso and Noel Rosa uh, adopting some jazz harmonies and increasingly learned uh, melodic complexity to the genre. Black performers receded into the background. And yet this was also the era when Vargas was promoting the new Brazilian ideal of the mestizo. The term refers to the product of miscegenation, of the mixing of two races, and early in Brazil's history, it primarily referred to the mixing of Portuguese and Aboriginal blood. Vargas attempted to transform the traditionally negative image of the mestizo into an emblem of the particular nature and strength of Brazilian identity. Samba, although deriving from black culture, not Aboriginal, became a symbol of the mestizo culture of Brazil. Of course, this is a complicated issue insofar as the otherness, the culturally black or racially black or Aboriginal, was behind the scenes, so to speak, while the faces of the most famous samba performers remained white. Carmen Miranda is a useful case study for the complexities of samba as a representation of a Brazilian ideal. She became wildly successful via Brazilian radio and Brazilian film in the 1930s. Then, along with samba culture more widely construed, she became a kind of export, and, and an incredibly successful export of that. She appeared on Broadway in New York in 1939, and then in a U.S. Hollywood film with Don Amici in 1940. Already in 1940, she was considered one of the most popular figures in the U.S. She'd only been here a little over a year. By 1943, she is donning her trademark hats full of tropical fruit. And by 1945, she is the highest paid woman in the United States. Astonishing. But while her stock was on the rise in the U.S., it was falling in Brazil. She made a trip back home in 1940, the year of her first Hollywood film, and was criticized for being too American and too black. She's not black, of course, uh, but that her music, her persona, was too black. One national paper claimed she was sullying uh, Brazil's reputation by specializing in, quote, bad taste black sambas, end quote. In July, she appeared at a charity concert hosted by First Lady Darcy Vargas, and she was booed so egregiously that she fled the stage. She remained in self-exile from Brazil for 14 years. 
So the 40s and 50s, or the early 50s at least, in Brazil, see the culture and, uh, and, and the samba at a kind of impasse. Insofar as there is a national culture, it would seem, it dances the samba. It is mestizo, a black spirit with a white face. But the middle class remains divided here. Rio de Janeiro, or at least the middle class half of it, considers itself an international city more than a national one. Their musical and cultural interests and the worldview largely stem from Europe. Samba is too other, too black, to represent them, although it has, with the harmonic borrowings from jazz and Noel Rosa and Dorival Caymmi, been moving toward a kind of hybridized identity. Ethnic, but international at the same time. Brazilian, but on a level of sophistication familiar to European norms. Black rhythm coupled with white harmony, melody, and form. This is coming into focus at an important moment in Brazilian history, the mid-50s. In January of 1956, Brazilian President Juscelino Kubitschek takes office with a platform of 50 years of progress in five. He decides to move the nation's capital from Rio to a more centralized location in an attempt to make it representative of the entire country, not just its most famous coastal area. This becomes Brasilia, a new city created in a new image. The city is characterized by the architectural innovations of Oscar Niemeyer. I will post links to some of Niemeyer's architectural wonders as they appeared in Brasilia to my website. Look at them. They're astounding, particularly in the way they managed to negotiate a strange space between traditional quasi-natural shapes and forms and an unabashed modernity. Niemeyer himself once declared, quote, I am not attracted to straight angles or to the straight line, hard and inflexible, created by man. I am attracted to free-flowing, sensual curves, the curves that I find in the mountains of my country, in the sinuousness of its rivers, in the waves of the ocean, and on the body of the beloved woman. Curves make up the entire universe, the curved universe of Einstein. Now, that's an exaggeration. It's not entirely true. There are straight lines in some of his buildings. See, for instance, the Palacio uh, do Planalto uh, as a great example, right? But notice the way that the rectangularity there gives way to a kind of curving waveform. Also, notice a frequent motif in these buildings. Many of them are surrounded by a reflecting pole. Thus, there is always a visual symmetry through reflection that balances the sometimes disarmingly jutting nature of the structures. This exploration of the tensions between traditionalism and modernism become a major concern, or becomes a major concern, for middle-class Brazil, portrayed in another loving and intriguing manner in Jorge Amado's celebrated novel Gabriela, Clove, and Cinnamon of 1958, And think again of the way that Niemeyer describes it, right? The curves he finds in mountains, the sinuousness of rivers, the waves of the ocean, and the body of the beloved woman. So there's this bid toward naturalism, there's this bid toward a kind of romanticism that's informing his modernism. His modernism is growing out of not just a um, refusal of traditionalism, but a growing out of the natural, growing out of... um, 
a response to the traditional past. So navigating this space between tradition and modernism, which by definition requires a kind of casting aside of traditional constraint, is, I think, a characteristic trait of the middle class. It contributes to its contradictory nature, what I'm calling its bad conscience. This is what I think of as operative in, for instance, Joe Biden's insistence that the middle class built the country. That is, he's claiming a kind of tradition for creating the new. And Niemeyer's doing something very similar. He's creating a new out of a kind of tradition, out of a kind of naturalism. This is a tradition that moves beyond tradition and establishes the modern while still maintaining some nostalgic, somewhat lost, somewhat melancholy uh, casting back or glance backward toward the tradition. I think that's part of those reflecting poles, right? There's something about reflection that is always kind of melancholic. Or maybe that's just me. Either way, we'll explore how all of this works in Bossa Nova in the next segment. elucidates some of the ideas we've been exploring here. Balsa is a term meaning wave, or fashion, or trend. It's a bit of hip slang that goes back at least to the 1930s when it appears in lyrics to a song by Noel Rosa, and it seems to have been used in the 1950s primarily in artistic circles, in the beach culture of the south of Brazil, specifically Rio. So, we can translate it as new wave, or new fashion, or new trend. Each translation has a certain appeal. The idea of it being a new wave relates to the natural formations venerated by Niemeyer in his modernist architecture grounded in natural shapes. One wave doesn't exactly replace another. It wells up in the space left by the previous wave's progress, and it presages the coming of other waves. New trend, as a translation, highlights the ephemerality of it all, the idea of being up to date, being with it. The new fashion indicates that this is part of the manner of living now, of the manner of living in this now, this modern moment. This is the way we do things. This is our fashion. Regardless of translation, the term demonstrates a self-conscious awareness that something new is arising from the old, something modern out of tradition. 
And the fact that the term employs slang, at that time associated with middle-class culture based around the refined leisure of the beach, suggests that if you are to understand this music, you must be tuned into that culture. If the middle class is a kind of buffer zone between the upper and lower classes, sharing wage labor with the working class, but a standard of living that allows for conspicuous consumption, sharing that with the wealthy, then bossa nova may be one of the most perfect musical representations of that middle class, at least as it stood in Brazil of the late 1950s and early 1960s. It retains some of the rhythmic vitality of the samba, but in a muted manner. The percussion is either altogether absent or is constrained to the relative background. Instead, the typical early bossa nova performance, its quintessential manner of presentation, centers on a solo singer and a nylon string guitar. There may be, indeed there often are, other musicians performing, including percussionists, including orchestral musicians, but the essential core is the voice and the guitar. So let's start with that guitar. It is doubtless significant that the main type of guitar used is the nylon string instrument, the classical guitar, accommodating greater resonance and balance in the context of the finger-picking style that bossa nova guitarists adapted more or less from, or at least in the manner of, classical technique. The nylon strings don't cut through the overall sound like a steel string guitar would. Nylon strings are mellower, softer, generally warmer. Just as is the case with uh, classical guitar, the guitarist here plays many roles at once. There is at the very least a bass line, usually alternating between the root and fifth of each chord, sometimes with connecting tones, and the harmonic support for the melody. At times, the guitarist will play that melody as well, again in the manner of classical guitar. One intriguing element of the approach, however, is the internalization of part of the percussion ensemble of a subgenre of samba known as batucada. Specifically, the thumb imitates the sordo, a large pitched bass drum, while the fingers replicate the rhythms of the tambourine, a high-pitched frame drum. Notice what's happening here. The more raucous percussion ensemble-driven uh, subgenre of samba, the batucada, is replicated and mellowed by being adapted to the guitar, an innovation supposedly developed by singer-guitarist João Gilberto. The rhythmic verve is maintained but subdued, made subordinate to the harmonic and melodic complexities of bossa nova's adaptation of the tonal vocabulary of West Coast cool jazz. The harmony of bossa nova draws primarily from the harmonic approach of West Coast jazz, so-called cool jazz. This harmonic vocabulary is similar to bebop, the use of extended chords, relatively fast harmonic rhythm, meaning the music doesn't stay on one chord for very long, and heavy dissonance, both functional dissonance, meaning it goes somewhere, and non-functional, meaning it doesn't need to go anywhere at all. Cool jazz adds to its bebop inheritance some influences from classical music and a slightly more meandering, impressionistic approach to harmony. That is to say, while it retains the drive toward the cadence to close musical phrases, the inner parts of a phrase are less overtly directional. As an example of both the classical influence and the less directional harmony in bossa nova, consider Antonio Carlos Jobim's classic tune, Insensitez, or How Insensitive. It is loosely modeled on the Chopin E minor etude, and its harmonies drift from its tonic, D minor, through a series of chords built on a chromatically descending bass line. The D minor tonic is followed by a C sharp diminished, 
then a C minor sixth chord, and then a G7 over B to a B flat major seventh. The song drifts from the D minor to the B flat, and then it continues on through a series of, of fifth relationships. But even that opening harmony, that D minor, that's already, in a sense, in motion. It's a D minor ninth. Now, that dissonance doesn't so much resolve as it just forms part of the sonority of that chord, but that's not usually a tonic sonority. There's something special about it here. There's something about it being already in motion. The song has four eight-measure phrases. Now, you might think of this as the height of typicality. The 32-bar form comprising four eight-measure phrases is one of the most common song forms in Western music, both classical and popular, but those are odd, meandering phrases. The last two phrases both start on C minor, in a manner that in one sense seems like a substitution for D minor, the same chromatic descent starts now from those Cs, but in another sense, they simply come out of the previous D minor chords, they're a continuation of that motion. Don't worry if the details here aren't registering with you. Listen to the sound of it. Dissonant, but restrained. Learned, but accessible. Audacious, but understated. And just a bit pretentious. The melodies in Bossa Nova also rely heavily upon syncopation, and that too imbues the music with a floating, ethereal quality. The melody notes often lean into those upper extensions of the chords, the ones that seem less grounded, less weighted down by the harmony. The melody drifts and intimates, it never really settles, it never directly tells. The cadences in bossa nova tend to be a study in melodic understatement. Most of them uh, arrive at the tonic, they, they arrive at home, so to speak, but that home is so lacking in security, so underwhelmingly established, that it could be just about anywhere. And yet, it is the place you can't help but feel is somehow the right place. Now, a lot of this should resonate with our discussion of the middle class and its group sensibilities. This is listening music more than dance music. And yet, it absorbs the dance as part of its content. It is sophisticated, even as I said, a bit pretentious, but not alienating, not above the attainments of a person with a modicum of leisure time on his or her hands. It is music that resounds with a kind of relaxed refinement, at ease with its decidedly middle-brow status, middle-brow in that it weds a certain cultivation to a certain accessibility. It has a kind of entry-level sophistication. There is a strange kind of power in this music's lack of assertion. This is music that can assume. It doesn't have to state what it means. It can be content with suggestion. The gently aching dissonance the wandering harmony, the wistful melody, reluctant to settle wholly to tonic and yet ever assured of its home, a security shot through with precarity. All of this seems like the musical embodiment of the middle class, particularly once you hear the arrangements and haunting orchestrations employed on albums like Chega de Saudade by João Gilberto, sometimes thought of as the inaugural Bossa Nova album, or Jobim's The Composer of Desafinado plays. A bit of flute, diaphanous and breathy, an impressionistic chord in the strings, the gossamer thread of a subtle piano fill, the warm, gentle baritone reassurance of a trombone line. This is music that encourages and supports leisure, music to fill leisure time, and at the same time to represent a kind of idealized leisure, the sound of leisure, leisure in itself, leisure as it ought to feel. And this is somehow a bit melancholy in that peculiarly 
middle-class manner. Melancholy is a state or character of pensive sadness. It's the sadness of contemplation and reflection, those reflecting pools again. The visual metaphor is not accidental. Melancholy is a way of seeing the world. The world appears cast in a light shadow, highlighting its profundities, which is why the melancholic is often seen as the creative entity. But those shadows also put the melancholic at a distance from the world, contributing to a sense of alienation. Not merely the Marxist alienation of the worker having lost contact with what the worker produces, maybe including that alienation, but not merely that, but also the alienation of a sense of belonging altogether. The middle class in this portrayal is alienated from others, while, as we saw with the keeping up with the Joneses' concern of the middle class, it's at the same time entirely dependent on others. The middle class is still other-directed while it feels estranged from those others. Middle class melancholy is the result of being caught between or among traditions from which members of the class inevitably feel alienated. Working class traditions, samba, lost national traditions, classical music traditions, European traditions, for the Brazilians at least, all estranged, all lost. Bossa Nova is dance music you don't generally dance to, thus alienated corporeality. It's classical and jazz harmony unmoored from those traditions. It includes the vitality of samba while relegating that vitality to the shadows. None of this is a criticism of Bossa Nova. This is gorgeous music. It is meant as a critique, a way of coming to grips with its beguiling presence. Notice, I haven't talked about the lyrics at all. We don't need them to make our point. But they generally do make our point for us. Many of the songs are celebrations of middle-class identification with Rio, the girl from Ipanema. Ipanema is a beach in Rio. Corcovado, that's a hill in Rio. Ella e Carioca, Carioca is a colloquial term for someone from Rio. Most of the lyrics heavily feature the word saudade, longing, yearning. And much of the lyrics have to do with the kind of sadness that on the surface appears to be relatively incidental, the sadness that informs romantic love, and yet the alienation from romance expressed here reveals its existential urgency. Look at the lyrics to Chega de Saudade, Enough of Yearning, which includes the lines, Go, my sadness. And tell her that without her it can't be. Tell her in a prayer that she should return, because I can't suffer anymore. Enough longing for her. The reality is that without her there's no peace, there's no beauty, only sadness and melancholy. It doesn't leave me, it doesn't leave me, it doesn't. But she returns, if she returns, if she returns, what a lovely thing, what a crazy thing. Because there are less fish swimming in the sea than the kisses that I will give her mouth. Within my arms, the hugs have to be millions of hugs, tight like this, united like this, silent like this. Hugs and kisses and caresses without end. What is going to end this business of you living far from me? I don't want any more of this business. Right? Those are the lyrics. Now, notice the estrangement from the lover. But he can't tell her himself of his longing, he leaves his personified sadness to go do it. For what is he at this point, if not a personified sadness, a kind of embodiment of the cultural signifier of melancholy? But then his thoughts turn briefly towards success, and the music moves from the minor tonic to the parallel major. And what do we get? Hallmark metaphors. His kisses will outnumber the fish in the sea. His arms will coil around her. But in the end, we come back to a metaphor familiar for the middle class, the metaphor of business. In the Portuguese lyrics, the term used is negocio. 
In the end, love, for all its melancholy, remains a moment of quasi-capitalist exchange. Because the flow of money is the lifeblood of a class whose way of understanding the world is inevitably conditioned by capitalism. To be missing someone is a debt owed. An interest is expected. The lover invests himself in the loved one and expects a return on that investment. The possibility of failure is the melancholy of capitalism, which operates on the logic of rampant accumulation. But there's always the possibility you won't accumulate. You won't get what you're looking for. You won't get what you're yearning for. No wonder Bossa Nova had such a short lifespan of being a real musical scene. Who can withstand all that truth? But of course, it remains. In the few Boston numbers uh, a jazz band will play in a set, in the tinny sounds of Muzak and elevator music, which quickly adopted Bossa Nova for its unintrusive refinement, its suitability for middle-class consumerism, the, the very consumerism Muzak seeks to promote, in those places, the truth of Bossa Nova remains, if you're willing to hear it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. For further information, please visit my website at chadwickjenkins.com or write me at cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. That's cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you soon.